0: Do we enjoy singing "Shine, Jesus, Shine"? Yeah. <laughs> Will asked me, "When was that song written?" And we looked at the bottom of the music. 1987. Wow! Did they have music back then? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Would you like to turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter five as we draw our series in Thessalonians to a close? We're in the last few verses, and as Is fairly normal with the Word of God. There's a lot more in it than can be summated in any given half hour roughly. Thanks for the reminder, Steve. I'll just switch this rascal on. Okay. And uh, so I'll seek to get straight into it. And uh, stay away from the preaching and stick with the teaching. And I'd like to do my readings this morning from the amplified version of the Bible. I've, I find it quite helpful from time to time because it does go into a little bit more of explanation, and usually it's pretty spot on, but there are some nuances. And you know, as, as you may be aware, it's very hard to translate Greek. Uh, which is the primary original text of our New Testament um, and certainly the, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Greek was the predominant language and it's very difficult to translate it exactly one way. We had an exercise in Bible college when we were kids in uh, students and they gave us um, a Greek sentence and... Uh, gave us the meaning of each of the Greek words in English and there were sometimes three, four or five, you know, we might know that about the word love, for example, agape, philio, eros and so on. And it was interesting across the class to see the, the diverging sentences that we all came up with as we sought to, to come to grips with the Greek language and put a sentence in, into it from the meanings, the various meanings that those words had in English. So sometimes it's kind of nice just to have a little bit of help with the amplified Bible. So let's uh, just read a little again of what Alana beautifully read to us out of the message translation. You can follow in whatever Bible you have uh, and and enjoy the journey as we we hear the word of God uh, put together in different translations. From verse 12 just to verse 15. Now also we beseech you brethren, get to know those who labour among you. Recognize them for what they are. Acknowledge and appreciate and respect them all. Your leaders who are over you in the Lord, and those who warn and kindly reprove and exhort you. And hold them in very high and most affectionate esteem, in intelligent and sympathetic appreciation of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we earnestly beseech you, brethren, admonish, warn, and seriously advise those who are out of line. The loafers, the disorderly, and the unruly. Encourage the timid and faint hearted. Help and give your support to the weak souls. And be very patient with everybody, always keeping your temper. See that none of you repays another for evil or with evil for evil, but always aim to show kindness and seek to do good to one another and to everybody. Uh, It's it's fairly clear that Paul is not actually speaking to a particular part of the church in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, depending on whether you want to put a K in it or not. Uh, The the clear intent of these words is to the rank and file of the church. Uh, It's to the brothers and the sisters and uh, that's the intent of the, the original language in there. There's some conjecture but it's apparently not real clear that um, there might have been uh, some discontent in, in the church, uh, some, there was some disrespect for the leaders emerging, uh, some conjecture that, that the leadership might have been a bit heavy handed with the folks in the church that had, you know, they'd come up against, uh, whichever... Uh, they were both wrong, you, you know the, the sense of of on one hand disrespecting leaders and on the other hand as leaders being being heavy handed neither were right and and At this early stage in the life of the Christian church, uh, there were elders in the Jerusalem church, but not necessarily so across the board there wasn 't necessarily all that infrastructure in place, so it it, it seems that that primarily as leaders emerged within a local congregation they would be raised up and appointed um, as such within the leader. The primary qualification of the leader in the church in that day was readiness to serve and to care. Um, I I guess in in our experience as pastors over the last 20 odd years we've often found uh, that form follows function you know some sometimes we're we're looking to find a Sunday school teacher so we we find somebody who's available um, but they may not be in the right place they they're covering a task for us but it may not necessarily be where the lord would put them according to the giftedness he's put in them and how they've been shaped over life and what their passion passions for the lord are and in terms of serving him and, and we've often found that the that that particular people with particular gifts and strengths, and even an anointing on them for a particular ministry start to become self-evident. They start to kind of perform in a particular way of function uh, long before they're actually appointed into a formal role. So in that sense form can follow function. Uh, the, the the sense of work here, those that uh, care for them, appreciation of their work, the... The intent of the original language here is like working hard. It's like a physical labour word for work. Toil, strive, struggle is, the, is very much that sense of this word in the Greek. Grow, they grow weary, uh, words that have come out arduous, exhausting. Uh, I guess over the years uh, we've found in pastoral work, uh, I've often said, oh, it's relentless. So, relentless, it's, it's not as bad in, in this scenario, Monty. But you see, we're not actually specifically speaking about pastors. We're speaking about leaders within the church and they may or may not be position holders but generally they will hold some kind of position or authority or responsibility and, and it can be the most challenging thing to, to properly interface and integrate that responsibility into their everyday life. And we live in a day that is highly powered, isn't it? Back in the day when we were kids, for us that are older, everything shut at midday on Saturday and we were kind of more of a church-going community these days, uh, those days. These days we're 24-7. Shops can be open 24-7. We can be responsible to be at work all across the board. When I was in television, of course, I had to work Sundays but uh, that was the way that that job brief was. And I used to seek the Lord and say lord i 'd really love to be worshipping today let 's make this day the best that it can be and i 'd give him that day and it was really interesting that day more than any other day in the week, I had opportunity to to be uh, the lord 's servant, if you like, or the lord 's testimony in the workplace, be able to chat with my my mates and and about some of these things, but uh, it 's highly pressured and challenging and all of us, I guess, in modern contemporary living are tugged in all kinds of different directions. So how do we give the very best uh, of ourselves to our responsibilities within the life of the church? The word admonish is used. Uh, admonish, do we, do we know what that word, word means? Paul's the only one that uses it in the New Testament, apparently. Admonish, it means to correct while not provoking or embittering. Admonish, now what's the word in the in the uh, amplified? Admonish in brackets, warn and seriously advise. I guess the point being there that we look up to our leaders, not because of their position. It's not a prestige thing. It's it's a, 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 an appreciation of what they bring in terms of heart and soul um, to the tasks. that that they have responsibilities for. Now, very often also early leaders in the church were leaders because they were in a position to care and we know that with the cycle of life. We're not always in the best position, are we, to give ourselves fully and totally to whatever responsibility opportunities might come along. So in the seasons of life there might be ebb and flow. There'll be some times when we can give fully and there'll be other times when it may not be the case. But here in the early church these were people who took the lead in serving uh, they were often people who had meetings in their homes. They were great with hospitality. They would lead in worship. They would lead in the prayers and the scripture readings. They would be the ones that were supporting the itinerant ministries coming through town and, and they would be the ones that were supporting the poor and overseeing the work on behalf of the church. Uh, these these Leaders in the church in this day would be the ones that would go into the courts of law and advocate for their brothers and sisters who had got into strife, often because of their faith. So they became very visible. These, these were the ones that when persecution breaks out that would be first targeted. And, and so there was that other kind of sense in which, you know, uphold our leaders uh, with prayer. Working from the centre out, I guess. The overarching perspective for me is with Christ at the centre is, is in Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so we're in that, that environment of mutually being submitted to each other as an acknowledgement that in a sense we're all under authority. We're all under the authority of Christ and this, this sense in which from that flows our leadership a our, our work within the life of the church, our position of responsibilities, are not something that we grasp and demand. It's something that is given, and and we enhance that by giving to each other uh, due honour. And we use that word carefully, but an affirming of who we are and what our role is within the life of the church. The the picture that comes through here in, Thess- in first Thessalonian letters. And reinforced in others by Paul of the, the church as a family, and and we are brothers and sisters together. It's a challenging thought for me that comes out of that, being portrayed as the family of God. Treat each other as brothers and sisters. That sounds great, and and I think I've I've used the analogy before. You know, we say that blood is thicker than water, and and uh, that we prefer to look after our our own and our kin uh, more than perhaps other associates or friends. Uh, Blood is thicker than water and sometimes things go down party lines, don't don't they, when there's conflict. Um, And the thought occurred to me with that was that Christ's blood is thickest of all the, the, the family associations, the brother, brotherly and sisterly relationship that we have is actually real in eternity. It's real in the spirit. It will go far on, far on past whether we are a father or a son in the material, in the physical here on earth. So, here's the challenge that comes to me. If there was a point of conflict or a point of difference or an opportunity to, to sort of build somebody up or tear somebody down, uh, correct or not, would I care about, say, my brother Pat more than I might about my son Jono? And even when I have spiritual authority over my son Jono because he's in my household, am I going to, the way I relate to him, relate in such a way that I protect my brother Pat. It's quite a challenging thought for me because it's automatic that we we step in where we have a sense of responsibility within our own families to to lead and to guide and correct and to raise up. But if we do it in such a way that I've actually pulled you down, despised you in some way, or and I always love it when you walk through that door, brother. I love it. Uh, but... I'm wondering whether there's a challenge there that the best thing I can do for my son in the flesh is honour my brother in the spirit. Christ's blood is thickest of all. Now imagine if we were that tight as a people of God, how that might uh, impact on our world, impact even on the way that we are together as family. It would, oh, man, unbelievable! Wow, you I mean I've got to, I've got to care about Betty? A whole lot more than my earthly mother. Wow. In a sense. You know, the best thing I can do for my earthly mother is make sure I care for you. You know, in that powerful, eternal family sense. Verse 14 says, And we earnestly beseech you, brethren. Admonish, warn, and seriously advise those who are out of line, the loafers, the disorderly, and the unruly. Encourage the timid, the faint hearted. Help and give your support to the weak souls. And be very patient with everybody, always keeping your temper. <laughs> Verse 14 care for each other. We together give pastoral care. Uh, and I, I think we know that here, and particularly in our tradition here where we haven't had a formal uh, pastoral role. Uh, my experience is at the moment is is coming into this church not being here quite a year yet is that we actually do a pretty good job of caring for each other. Sometimes when I catch up with folk in the church and I haven't gotten around to you all yet and we will, I have a plan. I have a plan and it's going to get me and Bev or either of us into your houses if you'll have us at least once this year. Uh, Some of you will be lucky enough to do more than that. We'd love to have you in our house. You know, uh, We're thinking and working on that too, how we can do, do our hospitality like we like to. Caring for each other. We give care for each other and as I go around I, I can often find that um, I'm talking with somebody, somebody who might not be able to come to church on a Sunday and they say, oh, you know, I had a visit from such and such last week and somebody else gave me a call a couple of weeks back and, and you realise that we're actually out there in background caring for each other. That is, that is part of who we are as a people of God and that's, that's something that we can do. Be caring for the needy and for each other. The idle, who are the idle? There seems to be a sense these were people that weren't working and they were being encouraged to work and, and some have suggested that it may even be because of the time that they were living in. They were thinking that Jesus was returning soon so there was no need really to work. Um, the timid, faint hearted or anxious People faint-hearted, fainting in the fight, uh, losing heart in the battle. Uh, these these were people in Thessalonica that were under persecution and and losing losing heart over that. Encouraging these people, looking after them. Some of them may have been faint-hearted about their salvation, needing to be assured of where they stood in Christ, that they were secure in Him. The weak. Some have said that, that these weak people were weak sexually, that they actually had no control. Well, they were living in a pagan society and many of them had been, most of them probably had been raised in a pagan outlook and uh, here they were seeking to, to understand what it meant to, to live the life of Christ in the midst. But there's also another sense too. It's, it's the young in the faith for me this this is an echo of First of, um, Corinthians eight where it talks about being our brother 's keeper. You know something might be fine for us as a, as a maturing Christian, but a young young person in the faith might see us in this case back in Corinth, eating meat offered to idols, and, and they, that affects their faith, so we are responsible for those that are younger in the faith, in the journey, so in a sense using the weak word in that way as as being younger and and not quite along the way, a little weaker in perhaps understanding and experience of the Christian walk. Be very patient, says the amplified version, not short-tempered. We are our brother's keeper. And, And the sense of it here, when it says to look after them, it says hold on to them, cling to them, put your arm around them. It's really cool, isn't it? Because there's a lot of intentionality in that. There's a real embracing and welcome. We will always have family who struggle with understanding, with the faith, with behaviour. How now should they live in their world? Verse 15 Be nice. Be kind. Be good hearted. It says. See that none of you repays another with evil for evil but always aim to show kindness and seek to do good to one another and to everybody. Not really fashionable these days to be kind or nice, is it? Really? Uh, <laughs> it's a fairly hardcore world out there and, and we've got to, you know, sometimes the way we get up, uh, climb up is to clamber over somebody else's back. Um, nice. We worry about people who are nice. Nice. If you're friendly sometimes with the checkout person at, at the supermarket, overly friendly or comedic or, or whatever, they can look at you often very strange and even suspiciously. You, you know, They just don't understand it. and I, I, I often get those kind of looks because I do try to be a little bit you know, friendly and engaging with people and a lot of times just don't get it. Uh, maybe it's my sense of humour they don't get. Um, make sure See to it, the sense of this passage. Make sure, see to it, nobody gets square with anybody else. Have you, I don't know if there's anybody here who's into that TV series Revenge. Oh, I'm, I'm not, not, not going to ask for a show of hands. My daughter loves it and, and the whole first series was about this girl getting revenge on somebody for what they did to her parents and it seemed it took more than one series, I think, to finally unravel. But now we're beginning apparently in the third series and I'm not watching it but now that person that she spent two series getting revenge on is now going to get revenge on her <laughs> and on it goes. So it's good television perhaps and it's a way that we think about it but retaliation is not an, an, it's just not an option in our outlook, in our paradigm, in the, in the framework in which we live our life. John Stott in talking about the Thessalonian church says, uh, the church is a community loved and chosen by God Drawing its life from Him and manifesting this divine life in the basic Christian graces of faith, love, and hope. This means being actively welcoming, uh, intentional friendliness. Ma- maybe we could call ourselves the church here at Monty, uh, where the church of intentional friendliness. <laughs> Now, I I think the welcome here is pretty good, don't you guys? Do you you feel that? Some some of us, perhaps, who are newer into the fellowship, would generally, my feeling is that we would say that our welcome is pretty good. Uh, And that's not to fluff us up or anything, it's just simply saying, you know, there are some, some scenarios we can go into where if we sit in the wrong seat and it's our very first time in the place, somebody will come up and say, You're sitting in the wrong seat, can you please move? That's my seat. You know, oh, and we're mortified. A lifestyle of being nice. Let's redeem niceness. Let's redeem kindness. Not only within ourselves, because there are times when we're challenged about that, but, but really for the sake of our world and the people that we live, live in. I'm finding a different culture here on the roads. In Sydney you jump into each other's lane all the time and, and most of the time people are happy for you to jump in on, the, on your lane. You know, you put your blinker on, and you give a little kind of wave, a, a nice sign through the back of the window, and they, you know, but boy, do they get irritated if you don't give them a little wave, a little acknowledgement. You know, sometimes then they'll toot you, and I go, well, then, and then it's different signs, you know, through the back window. But <laughs> uh, down down here, oh, we're a lot more hardcore in Melbourne. You, you know, you jump in at the at the risk of, you know raising their eye. Brisbane, we noticed when we went back to Brisbane, was a bit the same too. A bit hardcore on on niceness and kindness. Um, I kind of like to think ahead and try to let people in, even though I can be a bit hardcore as a driver, if I see an opportunity to be considerate or courteous. I kind of like to be able to do that, but it feels good. feels good. Being nice, being kind, being good hearted to everybody, even our enemies, see this is important for these guys in Thessalonica because they're being pressured, they're under pressure, they're being unjustly accused of things, they're being dragged before the courts. And um, So that love your neighbours, you love even your enemies thing, Paul is reinforcing to them. Set yourselves apart by being these people that are operating in the graces of God. What a great culture for, for a church, a mutual comfort, encouragement. Forbearance, meaning long patience, you know, and service. Let's read verse 16 to 22. Be happy in your faith, and rejoice and be glad hearted continually, always. Be unceasing in prayer, praying perseveringly. Thank God in everything, no matter what the circumstances may be. Be thankful and give thanks. For this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus the revealer and mediator of that will. Do not quench, suppress or subdue the Holy Spirit. Do not spurn the gifts and utterances of the prophets. Do not depreciate prophetic revelations nor despise inspired instruction or exhortation or warning. But test and prove all things until you can recognise what is good. To that hold fast. Abstain from evil, shrink from it, and keep aloof from it, in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. These verses, uh, in some senses, are seen as ways for me to live personally. That, you know, I can take from this individually, but it, it would seem that generally these verses are, 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 once again, aimed at the congregation as a whole. In other words, verses 6 to 18, worship. Well, elements of celebration and joyous praise in worship, these are echoes of the Psalms. And Stock calls this, this verse an invitation to worship. So let's, let's see what it says in the NIV, verse 16 be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, is seen by some as a call to worship, an invitation to worship. These are elements that should be in our worship times together. Celebration, joyful praise, echoes of the Psalms, joyful always, I, I was wondering about how it might have been for Paul and Silas who were in jail in Philippi just before they wound up here in Thessalonica. You, you know, we have that wonderful picture. Don't you wish if you were ever in that situation you could do that? You could sing, and and you're there in chains, chains. There's, you, you know, it's the, the most unbelievable dehumanizing experience, and uh, you're singing praises to the Lord, both of you, at the top of your voices. Uh, had Paul, you know, if you read back in Second Corinthians 11 about how many times he'd been whipped and how he'd been shipwrecked and how he'd been starved and how he'd been beaten when he's once again the poor, the poor guy having to justify his apostleship or his ministry, he had learnt a secret. He had discovered the power, the life-giving power that comes from being able to live with an abiding awareness of joy, of, of joyfulness. I'm not sure they would have got out of that jail had they been mumbling and grumbling. And oh, woe is me, look at us martyring for Jesus, you know. Something very powerful, and that, of course it was New Testament times, but it was something very powerful happened. And it seems to be quite clearly brought on by where Paul and Silas were in their heart, in the spirit before God and the praises raising up from that even this could not stop them. Unbelievable. And God moved in a very powerful uh, way. Praying continually, it goes on to say. So, being joyful, praying continually. This is indispensable in public worship. It was wonderful just to be able to intercede for our, our fellow brothers and sisters today during our open prayer time. Living every day... Um, in, as an individual with a sense of prayerfulness. What might that look like? Are we always praying? Or, or are we going through our day perhaps with a sense of the abiding presence of God and, and there's almost this sub-level conversation going on with him throughout our day. So It's a wonderful thing to actually go into our world. How can it be for people who go into their day without a sense of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit? What What does that feel like? Some of us who may know what life without God is like might be able to recall how different your day is when you walk out the front door and engage your day when you know that he walks with you and he desires to walk every step with you. What an amazing, wonderful thing. And to kind of be in that constant state of prayer that's not an intentional prayer but a a kind of a a way of living life that is an awareness, a prayerful awareness of his abiding presence. It talks about thankfulness, thanksgiving. Our communion is a remembrance of thankfulness. The word Eucharist is derived from thanksgiving. The word communion, which we use primarily here, is derived from spiritual fellowship. There's a sense in which these things mean very much the same. Or a complementary understanding of when we gather around the table to celebrate or remember uh, the Lord's sacrifice for us, developing a way of living which gives thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. <laughs> thank you, Lord, you know, for the flat battery this morning in the car. No, but we can thank the Lord in the midst of all of our circumstances. That's because of where we are with our heart with the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, the verse goes on to say. So, how now do we live? How now do we worship? We live and worship in an atmosphere of joy and prayer and thanksgiving, even in sufferings. Acts 5, the Jerusalem Christians, Uh, rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for Jesus' name. Romans 8.28, very familiar to many of us and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the condition of the promise is we love the Lord our God and that we are seeking to serve him and place ourselves under his authority and under his purpose. And when we place ourselves there, he will bend everything that comes across our path to his purpose. He will cause everything to come for good. Not so much I get my way in everything or even not so much for my good, but for for his good, for his eternal perfect purpose. Very powerful. So the challenge that we face when we look at these kinds of things and we hear these are very familiar. Oh yeah, be joyful always, pray always, thanks, give thanks to God always. It becomes so familiar, it just washes off us. But do we seriously believe in and embrace the reality of God's sovereignty? I, I can have trouble with this. You know, I can accept it theologically but do I accept it for myself? Can I believe for me in God's sovereignty? Can I believe for me in his care and his provision? When when all, all else is not there, when I have reached the end of my own resources, am I confident that God will provide, that God will move, that God will care for me? wow, what a difference my day takes on when I kind of embrace that kind of thinking, when I understand that it's not just a theological truth but a, a, a character of God and a declaration of God that he cares for me, that his sovereignty is over me. Leon Morris said that Christianity is a robust faith it's empowered by a divine dynamic and is to be lived out even under the most trying of circumstances. So divine dynamic, I don't think you can do this on your own. This is not human stuff and this passage makes it quite clear. You can't do this on your own. The power of the letter to the Thessalonians, this first letter, the second th- letter about six months later said much the same thing. It's like he had to reinforce what he'd said in the first letter And sometimes we take a while to get it. However, what do we need to get? All this wonderful stuff, how to be nice and how to be kind and how to be wonderful and how to be full of grace and live joyfully and abiding awareness of God's presence. Where does that all come from? How do we do this? Well, we don't. We can't. It's it's through God's indwelling Holy Spirit that any of this is possible. And so there is the challenge. How do we embrace that? How do we take that on board? How, what does it mean to allow God to do this work? I want to take a moment, just right here, and I'd like us to pray. Just thinking about these things, because they can come over as platitudes, can't they? You know, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Yep, everything that comes my way is going to be brilliant. Everything that comes out. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. You know, it's not always easy to praise God in the midst of grief. And I like the notion of we bring the sacrifice of praise. You know, into the house of the Lord. Sometimes we come, and it really has to be sacrificially, doesn't it? Here's a prayer. I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to ask that we all close our eyes. Um, things already this morning have have reinforced that this is a good thing to have this prayer this morning and we're taking a moment to sit with this word and this prayer by Anne Voskamp, she she lost a sister at a very young age and she's uh, penned this prayer. She knows something of grief and loss. So let's close our eyes if you would indulge me and, and Allow the words of this prayer as I read it become your prayer for this moment. More than likely it will be specific to something for you. However, it may be something you can pray and intercede with for somebody else. Let's pray. Lord of life, when I am between a rock and a hard place, cause me to know it full well. You make all grace because you transfigure all cause me today to believe right in the midst of hard things that you are patiently transfiguring all the notes of my life into the song of your Son. Today, let me do hard things. Live the hard discipline to give thanks in hard things. Today, I lean hard on you who softens my heart. Lord, hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To quench or not to quench, verse 19. Quenching the spirit means to suppress or subdue or to quell. The Holy Spirit doesn't force himself on us. He prompts, he urges, he nudges and our no to him can squash that straight up. Saying no to God can be rebelliousness, born of pride, which is the root of all sin, a sin of commission. It's intentional. No. Saying no to God. It's quite clear. You know it when those times come. And can be a sin of omission, You, you know, being neglectful of our relationship with God and our fellowship with him. So, so, there are times when the Holy Spirit is seeking to guide and to nudge and to urge and to be that still small voice in our heart and we're kind of just neglectful of our life in him so we wouldn't know if he was talking to us or not. The Holy Spirit is in our worship and we can plan as much as we like. We talk about our order of service as a worship plan but we should not expect the plan on any given Sunday. Sensitivity of the Spirit brings a flexibility to our worship, a beautiful blending of form and freedom. We, d- we we don't want to kind of squeeze him out or overproduce our times of worship. Heaven forbid. Verse 22 to 24, verse 20 to 22. Hear it, test it, hold it. F.F. F. Bruce describes prophecy as the declaration of the mind of God in the power of the Spirit. The declaration of the mind of God in the power of the Spirit. In broad terms, back in the Old Testament, the prophet, and they were, they were certainly major uh, in comparison to the prophets of the New Testament, but the Old Testament, the prophet pretty much foretold coming events, calling people back to God. The test of a prophet from God back then was 100% accuracy. If you weren't 100% accuracy, then you were ignored. And if, if you gave glory to any other than Yahweh, you were put to death. That was it, instant death. You could bring glory to no other God, small g, than Yahweh, the one and only. A New Testament prophet, on the other hand, tends to be more of a, a foreteller than a foreteller, speaking forth the things of God. An authentic prophetic message uh, will build you up, will bless us, will strengthen us as a church, encourage us, it will bring conviction, not condemnation. Bring an awareness of God. Verse 23 to 24. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through, separate you from profane things, make you pure and wholly consecrated to God, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved sound and complete and found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Faithful is he who is calling you to himself and utterly trustworthy and he will also do it, fulfil his call by hallowing and keeping you, says the Amplified Version. Hallowing is another word for sanctification or bringing into holiness. Complete satisfaction. That's verse 23 and 24. Complete satisfaction the God of peace. He is the originator of peace. This is, uh, as, as we, we've probably heard before, the Shalom peace of, of, that we hear in, in Hebrew uh, or Iorini peace, which is the Greek word. I, I like Iorini because my, my Greek grandfather named his firstborn, uh, a daughter, Irene and he would call him Iorini, he would call her Irene. It's a, child, a name often given to, to a baby in Greece, uh, a bit, but it means peace, and it means this a deeper peace than the absence of war. In the material world, we have to go to war to have peace, don't we? We have to fight to be peaceful, but shalom, peace, orini, peace is bestowed by God. It's a wholeness, a kind of a prosperity in our life, primarily a spiritual prosperity. It is embedded in the divine character to give complete wholeness and spiritual prosperity. It's a deeply embedded peace. My Scottish grandfather, John Mack, a wiry little fella that caused a bit of trouble when his mates in the the First World War got him drunk in France and he wanted to take on the MPs. He survived Gallipoli. He was a stretcher bearer, couldn't shoot people so he went into the front lines as a stretcher bearer he survived the Somme. Did it mark him? You bet it did. He lost his mother in Scotland before he was three and then his father remarried and he lost his father before he was five. He thanks his father to the very last breath he ever breathed on this planet for the fact that he married a godly woman. And so this godly woman raised my grandfather as her own they came to Australia, he was only about 14. I think he cheated his age a bit to get to the First World War. He, he married a gal from Scotland that he met while on leave during the war, so she was a war bride and came back to Australia with him. And I never knew my grandmother. She died in a house fire a week before I was born. He lived a whole other life from that middle 50s age to into the 90s when he finally went to be with the Lord. And he sang in so many different choirs and he, he, was, a, he, he was a self-declared Bible expositor <laughs> and he would go around speaking at the assemblies um, until he got uninvited a bit around the place because he had trouble with the idea of the, the communists in Russia because he'd been to the churches and he'd worshipped in them so he got himself a bit out of favour there. But a wonderful man of the word. He knew what it was like to, to be threatened with a disease that was going to take his life. And, he, you, you know, uh, he went through dark nights of the soul where he didn't really understand how God could save him because he was such a sinful wretch. And, you know, from my perspective, I, I, I don't know a more godly man. <laughs> but, you know, he, he was this guy that had, with all that he had been through, he was a man of deep satisfaction. He, he, he seemed to be satisfied with his lot in life. He didn't ever become embittered through the things that would be major. How do any of us know how we stand up to we're in that spot? Deep, complete satisfaction. That, that's kind of what I get from this abiding peace, this shalom, irene peace, this wholeness, this prosperity of spirit that the Lord promises us through sanctifying us The word sanctified is a tricky word. The passage also says that he will preserve us. So, sanctified, we are set apart or dedicated to for the purpose of God and we are held safe and secure. Our part, we are called to consecrate ourselves, to dedicate to God's purpose. His part, well, he does all the work. We allow him. We don't set boundaries on him. We give him full opening And his power is manifest only in a sanctified life. It is not of human origin. cannot be duplicated, cannot be replicated, cannot be pretended. It is divine in its work. It's through and through, wholeness and completeness. Completeness. He is the author of this enduring state of peace and a sense of completeness. R.C. Sproul says this, I'm drawing my thoughts to a close when he's speaking about being sanctified, separated too. Separated, firstly, he defines three ways it is seen. Separation to Christ, to Christ, through salvation. When we are born again by the Spirit of God through the sacrificial death of Christ, we are born into an eternal family and we, in in a, a real spiritual sense, are separated to Christ from where we were in our state of death through our salvation. The second one, it's a practical and progressive holiness in everyday life. In other words, being sanctified through our everyday life. This is part of what Paul is saying here in Thessalonians. And then thirdly, ultimately, change completely into his likeness when we are in his presence. We are actually as he intended us to be. I've got a couple of verses I'd like my two friends to pray or to read out for me. Mary, I have a mic for you. you. Preachers talk about uh, going from glory to glory. I kinda of, I kind of feel like oh that sounds like you know, you're talking yourself up being a bit egotistical. But this is what's this from? First Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. Do not deceive yourselves. If you if one anyone of you think he is wise by the standard of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. First John chapter three <coughs> verse two. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Mm. Would you like Mary to turn to Second Corinthians, verse three, chapter three? What was the, the verse again? Verse twelve. Second Corinthians. Corinthians, verse eighteen. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Mm. Aren't they wonderful verses? And I guess as we draw a close, this is the fulfilment of God's purpose from glory to glory, to be transformed into the very likeness of Christ. Beginning here in this world and completing when we join him in eternity, do we trust him to do that for For us? us? Do we believe he is up to it? Are we relying on him to do this for us? We are the Philadelphians, a people of the word, and a people of the way. Adelphoi means brothers. Adelphi means sisters and that's included when he says, so now brothers, in verse 27, or 25, brethren. Brotherly love. Strong's has it as love of the Christian brethren. Philadelphia. This is only possible because God is at work and it's not always easy to find. Let's pray. Lord, whizzing through this passage, we see something of your love for us. We see encouragement from you to, to say, hey, listen, I am faithful. I will do this. I will re- bring a work about in each one of us that is beyond our imagining. We thank you Lord that you provide for us all that we could need for this world to live out your purpose in our, in our communities and we thank you Lord for your great love for us and your amazing grace which journeys with us so that we can be transformed through your Holy Spirit and live life in the centre of your purpose where we find our peace, where we find our satisfaction where we find our true self in you. Lord, I pray your blessing on each one of us here this morning, that you would part us with your blessing, that as we go into our week, that you would lead us through our week with a buoyancy of spirit that comes from knowing that even in the midst of the most challenging circumstances, your light can still shine and your life can still glow in our own heart and life. Enable us, bless us Lord uh, that we may serve you faithfully in this coming week to be your voice, to be your arms of welcome and embrace, to be your word of knowledge and truth. Hear our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And a benediction, you're all invited for morning tea. Of course out in the morning tea room. Thank you David for your word earlier today. We pray the Lord speak to our hearts about how we serve Him in that way. <clears throat> May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you as faithful, and He will do it. Amen. Amen.